in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from Spokane, Washington, Brian Fry. How you doing, Brian? Hey, I'm doing well, Russ. How are you guys doing today? Good. Not touching people, not getting around people. It's, we're in the middle of the uh, coronavirus epidemic. So if you're listening to this five years from now, uh, you know, this was that time period where everybody had to like stay huddled in their house. Not touching. Not touching. <laughs> I got a little bit of cabin fever, but that's okay. The good thing for that is to make new friends. And we have a new friend of the podcast coming on today, Michael D. Giovanni from the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Michael, how are you doing today? I am great. We're at the uh, very acceptable social distance. That's the beauty of podcasting. Yeah, just thousands and thousands of miles (laughs) away from each other. So I think everyone can be happy and feel safe. But uh, guys, thanks for having me. Welcome, welcome. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, if you listen to the Classic Film Jerks podcast, you might know Michael pretty well. But in case you don't, let's get to know him just a little bit better. Let's just, uh, you know, get a feel for uh, Michael here. So, Michael, what's the last movie you saw? Us. Jordan Peele's Us. Oh, I want to see that. And? It's it's good. I don't think it's as well, as well constructed as Get Out, but I would argue it's scarier. Oh, okay. Okay. Because I didn't really find Get Out scary. I got to be completely honest on that. I thought it was just an effective thriller, but Us is a little more classic horror trope, jump scare sort of things, but it it kind of disassembles based on, I think, on plot towards the end. But it, I, I, I liked it. It was good. Nice. So Jess watched Us on the airplane to uh, Sweden and when we landed, I was like, all right, what did you think of us? Because, like, I wanted to see it, too. And she was like, I wouldn't necessarily call it a horror movie. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, that it's, it is it, the same. He, he doesn't make super scary horror type stuff. It's not they're not essential. They're not very bloody films by a wide margin. I just think this one has more jump scares than Get Out. I thought Get Out was sort of unfairly classified as horror for some reason. I mean... It, I, I think I thought it was just a really effective thriller. I think us is still in that vein, but uh, probably he's he's leans a little bit more into slashery tropes at times. Okay. See, when I first saw the preview for it, I got really excited because I was a huge fan of Liv Tyler and Scott Speedman and The Strangers, and I was kind of hoping it was going to be that. Except, you know, obviously with that mirroring how is it us kind of thing so i was like okay take that with a twist that should be awesome so from new to old you do a classic film podcast what movie did you enjoy michael covering on your podcast the most oh man that's a great question uh you know we've done a lot of big uh, big classic movies by that i mean like the greats the ones that cast a massive shadow like the gone with the winds and casablanca's and citizen canes and those were all fun but I think the 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 movie that stands out for my, me and my co-host Andrew Blooms, where we had a lot of fun 
recording it, and I think it made for a great episode, is a show where we covered Oliver with an ex exclamation mark. Uh, that was recommended by a listener of ours, and it's that musical about all Oliver Twist, and it ain't very good, just to <laughs> let you all know that. Uh, and we just tore into it, and man, that episode's funny, if I may be so humble. But, but it's funny, the guy that recommended that movie to us has never dropped, never dropped that. Like he's still messaging us and contacting us saying like, and another thing, how could you, and Oliver, how could you say it didn't have like he, where this has been like years running where we're like, dude, you gotta let it go. <laughs> thing. We didn't, I'm sorry. We didn't like Oliver, but yeah, that, uh, that probably is one uh, just off the top of my head. I would say is probably, it's not not for the quality of film, but the one I think we had a lot of fun kind of digging into. Great answer. Uh, now, today we're going to do a very R-rated movie, which makes me want to ask, Michael, what was your first R-rated movie? My first R-rated movie, yes. It was Halloween 2. I would have been not to, well, I'm going to age myself. Wait, you didn't do Halloween before you did Halloween 2? No. I would, we Halloween 2, I was at a sleepover birthday party the first time I was ever doing a sleepover birthday party might have been eight, I think seven or eight years old and like 15, eight year old guys in the basement sleeping and his parents let us watch Halloween two on videotape. And that, that messed with our brains. I think a little bit. That's, that's pretty um, young. That's pretty young to see that. I mean, I that stayed with me for a while. Sleeping was challenging after that. So I that was one that has to be the first R-rated film. I know shortly after that I watched the original Police Academy, which I'm sure was R-rated, which is strange now. But yeah, it was Halloween 2 was the first R-rated flick. So so there's a there's a meme out there on talking about Michael Myers where I said uh, for social distancing oh, yeah. purposes yeah, yeah. Uh, he's going to the mall. And uh, or sorry to the to Whole Foods, and he's got a Michael Myers like get up on, and people look a little bit concerned that Michael Myers is just walking down the aisle at a regular Whole Foods. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it, it's like not uh, not to do too much for the uh, the disease portion, but helping with social distancing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so if you could meet any actor, Michael, who would it be and why? Well, okay, so let's say they got to be living. I, I'm assuming that is important. We don't want to. We don't want to be with a dead person unless you're into that sort of thing. But <laughs> the, I would probably say it would be George Clooney. Okay. Yeah. You guys, you guys suggest him a lot on your show for recast. I've, I've noticed that like Clooney is one of your first go-tos. Like I'd put Clooney in this movie. So that that's not surprising me. Yeah. Well, you know what? With Clooney, it's, he, it's easy when we're, especially when we're recasting films of certain eras where, cause he's got that quality where he's got that movie star quality of a bygone era. You know, he feels akin to the the fifties and sixties. He's got that class and debonairness. Uh, but the reason I'd want to meet him is I feel like he, he's known to be an incredible practical joker. Uh, and what you can, I always, you can always tell what a, a, a well, this is still, I mean, I'm probably not, a perfect science, but how good of an interview they are on like a talk show. 
right? And that starts to get a sense of people's real personalities. And he's funny and he's quick-witted. And I think he would probably be a fun person to have a beer with versus, you know, people can say, oh, Johnny Depp or someone like that. And he'd probably be, let's be honest, like a weirdo, right? Like he, Johnny, jo Johnny Depp would probably be a little strange and where... I don't know if I would necessarily want to hang out with him where George Clooney feels like a dude you want to hang out with. I'd want to hang out with Johnny Depp as Jack Sparrow. That, I, yeah. I, but see, actually, isn't that him now? Like, that's what I want to, like, I would have the caveat that I think I would end up offending Johnny Depp because I'd be like, all right, you can really stop now. You're not on camera. It's none of the parts that you're currently playing, which are all the same part. Like, who are you really inside anymore? Or are you that gone with that character. Like, are you Hunter S. Thompson for the rest of your life? Now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and would you have a beer with uh, George Clooney or a little Nespresso? Well, I mean, he seems quite apt to have a Nespresso, doesn't he? That's uh, we'll see how long that contract exists for, but uh, maybe he'll have a nice, gla nice glass of Italian wine. Maybe we'll share that in near Lake Como, his near, near his home. So uh, George, if you're listening, you know, hit my dms oh yeah he's a big fan of the show always oh, i'm not i assumed i just totally assumed uh no brian i'm gonna ask you the same question who would you meet if you could meet any actor kate beckinsale i'm still waiting for my <laughs> shot Perfect. <laughs> one day one day and i, I, I feel like i don't even need I, to ask what's why. <laughs> yeah what, what, what's the uh the uh, the snl comedian she dated for like five seconds pete, oh, pete, pete davidson. davidson which made yeah i feel so like crazy. if pete davidson had a shot yeah if pete davidson had a shot then i am I feel like that is a completely plausible, I'm older than he is. I think I could probably make it work. You know, it's, 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 it's something that is attainable. If he can do it, you can do it. That's <laughs> a great, that's a, the perfect, perfect reason for Pete Davidson is that he's all of a sudden like macking all these girls and you're like, this is giving hope to a lot of men, I think, right now, because he seems. Yeah, I mean, he's he's like you you've heard you've heard interviews like he deals with depression. He's a funny guy. Clearly, he does stand up and everything else. I like he's a, he's a normal human being. And Kate Beckinsale is so far away from a normal human being. I, I, I even heard a, a stand up the other day about from a guy who was on the late show with her. And he was like, she was so hot. It made me angry. Like I was back in my green room kicking trash cans. I was like, God, she's so hot. Damn it. <laughs> like, and I was like, that's exactly how I feel. I would go another direction. I just, I, I would really love to meet Bill Murray. And I think it would be a blast. I think that would be a good time too. Just don't accidentally shoot him thinking he's a zombie. So today's movie is what, Brian? Uh, we are doing Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown comes out in 1997. It grosses $17.5 million. It places in the box office at 99, but that's in the top 100 for the year. It comes just in behind The Preacher's Wife and ahead of That Old Feeling. And the number one movie that year was Men in Black. IMDb gives Jackie Brown a 7.5 out of 10, and the Rotten Tomatoes critics give it an 87%, and the audience score is just behind at 85%. The Academy Awards nominated Robert Forster for Best Supporting Actor, and it collects two Golden Globe nominations for Best Actor for a Motion Picture Musical or Comedy for Sam Jackson, and Best Actress for a Motion Picture Musical or Comedy for Pam Greer. Odd enough, Robert Forster didn't get the nomination in that one. Of Quentin Tarantino's films that received Academy Award nominations, this is the only one not to win at least one award, so it gets blanked 
out of those nominations. So, Michael, had you seen Jackie Brown before? If so, when? Uh, I have seen it before, and I, I saw it in the theater um, when it when it came out. I mean, at the time, like I think the most of movie going audience was, I was absolutely blown away by Pulp Fiction. Like I was, I, I was present for that just complete kick in the pants that 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 movie provided to the cinema experience i i'd I'd never saw reservoir dogs in the theater but obviously after i'd seen pulp fiction a lot of people went back and discovered that so i was like eagerly awaiting whatever quentin did next so when jackie brown came out i was i was like first in line at the theater to see it did it go down well for you you know what? The first viewing, I remembered liking it, but I think like most people, the initial reaction was it didn't have that 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 pop, that energy that a Pulp Fiction had. And a lot of people, I think, were like, oh, that's not what I was expecting. And I remembered liking it, but I find Jackie Brown, the, what, what's interesting about that film is I think it's one of his films that has aged very well. I think it gets better on uh, on repeat viewings, and uh, I think it places hot quite high now in his. I would say for me personally, in his filmography, because I. But at the time, I remembered go. I remembered really liking it, but I don't. I think I've grown to like it more. Uh, uh, as time has moved on, wouldn't you say that this is probably his least weird movie too? Like, I feel like this is his most down-to-earth, I am not trying to trick you or mind-screw you or anything like that. This is the most straightforward plot he has laid up. Yeah, that's actually a, a, a pretty a pretty good uh, description. I mean, this is the one film that he's done that's based on the works of somebody else, right? Like, the, he took this is based on a, a book. Yeah, Elmore Leonard book. I think the there, there's a couple Tarantino-isms in it not to get ahead of ourselves, but like he's showing that one sequence of events like three times from different vantage points. But I agree with you. I think this is probably, in my opinion, the least slick of his films. It's pretty, I, I would say this and maybe the hateful eight mm-hmm. uh, have are, are a bit are kind of like spiritual uh, partners in that sense where it's a little more methodical a little more talky, and that's saying something about a Tarantino film. Uh, it's a little more talky and methodical and not as, I, I think slick is probably the best way to describe that. Okay. okay. And uh, Brian, had you seen Jackie Brown before? If so, what was your background with it? And is it holding up for you? Uh, I bought this movie, and this is a shout out if this place still exists, but there used to be a shop in Morgantown called Vintage Videos and Games. And during our freshman year, uh, my roommate and, uh, and host here uh, is uh, John Flack. He and I used to go down there, and they sold movies for, like, nothing, man. It was, like, two ninety nine, whatever you wanted on DVD. And so I just started buying movies like it was my job. And this was one of them. So I ended up bringing it back. I recognized that Tarantino was the director. This is in the days before IMDb, so it wasn't that you just had this laundry list or easy access to someone's uh, um, filmography. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'll give this a shot. It's got Tarantino on it. Loved Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. So why not go for it? I watched it. I liked it. Um, I would say that this didn't rank super high on my rewatchability list. I think once you kind of watch this once, uh, you're, you've are you got a good shake on it. 
Uh, it was nice coming back to it. It's probably been 10 years plus since I watched it. And uh, I will say that this was the first movie, I didn't know it at the time, but this was the first movie in a plethora going forward from Quentin Tarantino where I think to myself, he cannot possibly drop more N-bombs in the next movie. And then the next one comes out and I'm like, God, I was wrong. And then the next one comes out and I'm like, God, I was even more wrong. Like, oh my gosh. So I, I don't know what the tallies are for all these movies, but I just feel like he continuously pushes that envelope. And going back and rewatching that, I was like, oh yeah, this is where it started. I think I I think I know the stat on that. I think of his films, this one ranks third in terms of end drops. So I'm going to go with Django for number one and then Hateful Eight for number two. I believe you are correct in that order. Okay. Django was frankly shocking. Oh yeah, that one is like it's mind blowing how much uh, it's used in that, and it's kind of nice that he got it out of his system a little bit with the Kill Bills and all that, and then you know obviously uh, once upon a time in Hollywood it felt like well this is a breath of fresh air because there's none of that I, from what I remember, but yeah that it, this it, this one is uh, pretty intense the amount, the language, I guess. Yeah. And, and, and those are all movies that aren't super rewatchable for me. Um, most of his, uh, his works as a director, I find a little tedious to rewatch. Uh, my wife had a few slick things after we finally got out of, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, (laughs) but, um, it's, it, it is one of those things where I, I do find, uh, some of his movies to be, uh, mentally and, and, uh, energy taxing i I know what you mean and this was this is actually my first time to it so i'm going to be bringing a first timer's perspective to it quentin tarantino for me i'm not gonna lie i'm not a huge fan of his work and uh it's one of those things where for somebody who i'm not a huge fan of i keep seeing a lot of his movies and i've seen most of them it seems like and uh i i think chad and i were talking about it and he he had a good point he's like it's like lewis black with his bit on candy corn where it's like every year i get back into candy corn and i'm like oh candy corn and i put it in my mouth and i go son of a it's awful yeah. <laughs> not, oh, why i don't eat candy corn like <laughs> so um, i'm a little bit like that with quentin tarantino where it's like every every time another one comes out people love it and they always recommend it. it's like you got to see this one this one you need to see this one and um it's one of those things where i got to it and i would agree with you brian this is i liked that this was tonally more consistent but at the same time it's uh it's got some tarantinoisms that i i do get a little hung up on and so i did watch this one twice for the podcast and I don't know that I was, I think I was expecting to enjoy it more the second time around. Like maybe I was going to catch all this stuff that I didn't, but I think to your point, Brian, I got it. I got it. And I think there was some degree of labor. And I think there's always a degree of labor when you go through such a dialogue intensive movie. That's two hours and 40 minutes long. Yeah. He, 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 he doesn't make short films by any, by any stretch. And I think as I, and I'm, I'm picking up what you guys are putting down here that, this is a talky film and that's saying something for Quentin, right? Like he, he excels at dialogue. I personally love the rhythm of his dialogue uh, in a lot of his films, but this one, there is a bit of a lackadaisical effect to it that you have to either buy into or not. Uh, I think I, I, mean, I said earlier, 
this lacks uh, the, an energy of some of his other films. Like I think Pulp Fiction has an energy. Kill Bill, the Kill Bill films, especially part one, have uh, an energy and a kick to them. This is more of like slow, like jazz. Like it's slower. Like things kind of happen at like sort of molasses pace in, I think in places. You could group Tarantino movies in terms of of speed. Um, or, or perhaps just like Pulp Fiction jumps around. Obviously, that's part of its charm. But Pulp Fiction and the Kill Bill movies were, were very similar. I'll even toss in Reservoir Dogs into that, that category. But uh, Jackie Brown and Glorious Bastards and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, those are all more linear, story-driven films that rely so much more heavily on dialogue they're all dialogue heavy don't get me wrong it's all about the writing in these but i will say that that those three especially are the ones that they're they're a slog and i don't mean that in necessarily a negative way but you are you have to be down for the trip yeah yeah it's like saying hey i'm gonna drive to california and being like oh that's 16 hours i didn't realize (laughs) Now we're going to get into this movie and spoil it as we move forward. So if you haven't seen the movie Jackie Brown, we recommend that you go check it out, come back and enjoy this. Or if you don't care about spoilers, sit tight. We'll be back after these messages. It's your 44th president, Barack Obama. Now that I'm no longer president, I enjoy watching movies, listening to podcasts occasionally, while having a drink with one of those little tiny yellow umbrellas in it. Uh, Michelle turned me on to one of her favorite podcasts, The Retro Movie Roundtable. I love it too. I'm here today to tell you this great podcast needs our help. We need to come together and go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast and give a rating and review. Then after that, give it maybe one of those thumbs up on Facebook. If you want, you can even send an email to Retro Movie Roundtable Yahoo.com. America, with your participation. We can take this great podcast to new heights we never thought possible. Can we build a show that I love a better tomorrow? Yes, we can. I'm Barack Obama. Uh, I endorse this message. Okay, we're back. And Brian, do you want to give us a recap on the movie Jackie Brown for those who haven't seen it since 1997? In L.A., 1995, flight attendant Jackie Brown is in a downward run of her career using her job to smuggle money from Mexico for Ordell Roby, a gun runner, under the close scrutiny of the ATF. Ordell learns that another employee, Beaumont Livingston, has been arrested and, knowing he's a risk of becoming a snitch, bails him out with a bondsman, Max Cherry, and promptly kills Livingston. Acting on information that Livingston had already provided the ATF, proceed to arrest Jackie and find $50,000 on her person. Agent Ray Nicolette and LAPD Detective Mark Dargis then lean on Jackie to be their new snitch. Ordell puts up a bond for her release with the intention of killing her as well, only to have the tables turned on him. What proceeds is nothing short of a triple cross. Jackie and Ordell hatch a plan to double cross the two law enforcement officers, while Melanie and Luis, Ordell's girlfriend and friend, hatch a plan to double cross him, as well as Jackie and the bail bondsman Max play to keep the money for themselves. 
all comes to a climax with Melanie, Luis, and Ordell all perishing over $500,000, and Jackie Brown minus Max's cut ends up with the money. So we said that this is similar to Leonard Elmore's book, Rum Punch. Uh, I've not read this book, but from what I can tell, it's very similar. Have either of you two read this book? I have not. I have not either. Okay. I, I, from what I'm reading, it's very faithful adaptation, but one of the big things that's, that's interesting to what we were just talking about before the break was Quentin Tarantino is very verbose and very sprawling and very takes a lot of tangents. Elmore's writing is very concise and focused, and you know he, he's going to put you on the path that you need to go on. And so it was an interesting marriage of those two things that were coming together here. But having said that, it's still very faithful to the book. It's one of those interesting adaptations. And as you pointed out, Michael, this is the only one that he has done an adaptation. And I think that that is the reason why you were saying, Brian, this one doesn't feel like typical Quentin Tarantino in that regard. I think it's a result of the story. It's definitely the opposite end of his spectrum. Like yeah. if you want to say he's got like a range, then this is definitely heavily to one side. I mean, you can understand why he'd be attracted to the material because I guess uh, coming off of, you know, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, he was sort of getting classified as, oh, he likes to make the gangster movies and the crime movies. So it, it felt when I think when people first heard, oh, he's going to do an adaptation of Rum Punch, an Elmore Leonard film or an Elmore Leonard book, it felt like that makes sense. You know, I think a lot of people were, uh, I really wasn't surprised. I think his, the the tone and pace of it is what maybe people were a little bit more surprised at or were unexpected about. I was actually happy post this little three film arc that he did with his first three films that he kind of deviated and did something vastly different. Whether you thought it was successful or not, he at least went, I'm going to try something a little different now. We're not going to have just fast talking gangsters in my next film. So this to me, in a way I can, I get why he was attracted to the material and why he went for it. It felt Tarant Tarantino-y, I guess you could say. Can we say Tarantonian? Yeah. Why don't we try that moving forward? <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I thought was interesting though, is it's low body count and it's not very violent for a Tarantino film either. No. And it's, I actually like that because I think one of the things that will pull me out of it to some degree is, uh, you know, in the middle of Inglorious Bastards, next thing you know, they're scalping Nazis and the whole thing's like this heightened reality that it's, there's, you know, it's, um, it's wild. It's out there. Like, you know, out of nowhere comes this flamethrower or out of, you know, I don't want to spoil too many things for, for the movies, but I mean, he is viciously brutal when it comes down to it. And this movie doesn't really have that. So that's another one of those signature pieces of a Tarantonian film, as yeah. you were saying. And uh, this movie this movie doesn't do that either. Yeah, it's pretty low-key on uh, the violence and, and, and body count. I mean, some of it is done... Uh, there's that one scene with uh, Chris Tucker in the, in the trunk... I mean, that 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 is like a half a kilometer away. It looks like where where you see him basically get shot, right? So it is that's that's actually a really good observation. Is that it's it stands out in his films where you don't get that all of a sudden shock of gore, which Tarantino seems to love to do. Yes, yeah, for sure. Uh, Brian, did you like that nuanced romance of like, are, are they in love or are they not in love? What do you make of Max Cherry, Jackie Brown? I think that this is a classic 
this is kind of a, a classic move in terms of love stories where you can tell that he's infatuated with her, but he also absolutely 100% knows that she is trouble. And he is the kind of guy that, although he's a bail bondsman, mitigates that sort of risk. So I think it fits with the story to have that sort of infatuation in there, the fact that he would go, you know, the extra leg to help her, but in the end still being the guy who's like, oh, God, you're fire. You know, <laughs> this is right. this is play, This is like playing with a box of matches and a haystack. Yeah, he. you can tell that he's taken by her and he's a bit fascinated by her, but he's smart enough to know this probably isn't a good thing. I, I found myself the first time watching it wanting them to kind of go in. I I was hoping that he like he would bring some stability and like he might tame some of her wild sense to some degree, as well as she was giving him the excitement. Because, I mean, the guy was kind of in a rut. And he said, you know, I don't think I want to do this anymore. And uh, when it got down to the end and he stayed put, I got to say, the ending left me scratching my head. And the second time through, I was, I was watching for this a little bit more. And I think I see what you guys are saying, the hesitancy that he had. But the first time through, I was really like, I, I kind of wanted them to be together and I, I wanted them to both go off to, uh, you know, Europe together. So uh, I, I was left kind of going like, oh, no, is there an alternate ending or something on this? <laughs> <laughs> but that's good storytelling then. And if you bought into it, like uh, he I in a way liked that they didn't go there. I mean, I I, I think that would have been cliche. Dare I. Yeah, I, I dare. I would have said it. It would have been a little bit more predictable in my of to my books. I liked that there was a bit of a spark, but we didn't need the flames uh, sort of thing. I think Max Cherry's a little by the books and he's kind of torn in this where he's by the books and a smart guy and kind of knows, you know, shouldn't get involved. But like I said, he's a little tickled by her and he gets drawn into her orbit. But I kind of like that he still is ultimately, he he's like, I am who I am. I gotta, I gotta go use my head here. Yeah, which with good reason. She is a lot of trouble. There's no doubt about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, now, another thing that I thought was interesting was uh, like a lot of Tarantino movies do do this. So this, this we talked about how this is different. This one is similar. There's not really a main character. Or it's not a clean cut main character. Yes, Jackie Brown's name is on the movie. However, you don't really meet Jackie Brown. I was looking at it until about the 40 minute mark, which is, again, that's so extremely quentin tarantino that's what he does he's gonna chew every bit of scene uh every you know he's gonna he's gonna really stretch this thing out but i mean you don't really meet her until 40 minutes into the movie and you could debate and say sam jackson's kind of the main character max cherry's kind of the main character and it kind of switches at various points in the movie yeah absolutely i think that's that's kind of one of the big pieces of this where i really do enjoy movies where it's like there are 15 supporting actors and that's it. It's almost like, you know, multidisciplinary studies or something where you don't have one primary concentration. You just get to enjoy several people who are carrying the load. Yeah. I I'm, I'm going to agree with you on that too. And I, and I think you uh, shook that outright. Cause at times as you're watching it, if someone walked into the room and decided to sit down and watch 10 minutes of the film with you, they could go, Oh, this is a movie about a bail bondsman. Or you would think this is Ordell Roby's movie, right? It's a, a, a about this screwed up gangster. But I, I like those multiple point of views that are kind of happening here. They're the three main thrusts of the of the of it. I mean, 
De Niro, uh, Bridget Fonda and all them are more supporting characters, which they get a lot of screen time. But I, I, I like that. I like that there's multiple points of view that are kind of at play here. I mean, ultimately, uh, it falls on Jackie Brown. She's the pivotal kind of uh, player in the in the scam at the end. But it's true. Like, there's not one main character that the audience is kind of just following the story on. There's a lot of there. There's a lot of uh, protagonists. Yeah, yeah, and I think Tarantino tends to do that. Yep. across the board. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, maybe Kill Bill might be the exception to the rule. Yeah, that's probably pretty fair. It's pretty. That one is cut pretty dry, uh, like clean. That. It's a it's it's Beatrice Kiddo's film like she's driving the whole narrative here. But you're right. Most of his other films, you go even go back to Reservoir Dogs major like who is the star of that one? I mean, it's hard to even guess who's the star of that one. Um, yeah, it, it does. It, that is quite Tarantonian. It's Mr. Pink. Yeah, it's Mr. <laughs> Pink. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Quentin lets you know Jackie is important. Uh, but uh, as you guys mentioned, he's. Uh, it's one of those things where I got a little bit frustrated in the storytelling with this, and I'm kind of skipping ahead as we're transitioning to some director points as I'm talking about this, but I got frustrated because, again, we we see Jackie Brown move across this conveyor belt in the beginning. We know she's important. Her name's on the movie, and we don't meet her for 40 minutes. And you're right, Michael. She's the part that makes everything happen, but she's actually one of the hardest to figure out in the plot. It's not clear to see what she's thinking because she's quiet. She's always trying to pull something over on somebody. So one thing I loved about the first time I did watch this, that's so there's some frustration that goes with that. But the thing I liked about it was she kept me guessing because like you said, I was aware that she was the one advancing the plot. Depending on how she shakes, that's going to depend on how the cops go and how uh, Ordell Roby and his, the gangsters go and as well as the, the bailed bondsman and how he fits into this. And it was just interesting to see that everybody's dependent on her actions. Right. And she's a smart cookie and she is sometimes, you know, and she's kind of sitting back and reading people. So to your point, she doesn't have a lot of a poker face for a, a large majority of this film, or she has a great poker face, I should say, uh, that you can't really tell where she's leaning. So as an audience um, like member, you're kind of going, what's what, what is she thinking what does she want what is she doing they leave that kind of really close to chest which i think is an interesting choice i mean obviously at all at the end it, it pays off but throughout the film she she kind of keeps her cards close right which is uh it's a little it's a different for uh, like a main character Certainly. And Brian, is that one of the reasons why you feel like maybe on a second watch it didn't do it for you as much? Because once you know what Jackie Brown's motivations are, it removes a lot of that tension that he's building. I would say that you still get some of that piece regardless. I'm trying to really nail down for you what makes... I think it's just a length and wordiness. Like You want to pay attention to a Tarantino movie. It's ingrained in his film that you if you never watched him before then you're making a point to say okay i want to catch everything if you've watched him before you know you need to make a point to catch everything so it's i guess it just comes down to a thing where i feel like i am just so taxed after i finish watching one of his movies that i struggle with rewatchability on most of them mm-hmm 
Well, one thing that we can all agree on, the perfect stocking stuffer is chicks who love guns. Remember that for this Christmas season. <laughs> yeah. Where did they come up with that? That's crazy. It's, I know. I mean, please, God, don't let that be a real thing that he's basing something, uh, basing this on. That that scene is, uh, that opening is pretty bananas, but I, I, I think it's really fun. I, I It's ridiculous. It gives, uh, Samuel Jackson's just having a blast doing that scene and and spitting out the dialogue as he's kind of watch uh you know describing the guns and talking about that like they're not really even caring about the girls they're just more like they're so like enamored by the these weapons i i think it's i i think that's silly but but fun i feel like the market for this movie is bert from tremors (laughs) (laughs) right um no, but uh, I was also disappointed. I looked it up, and none of the people in the, or none of the ladies in the video were American gladiators because I figured they had to be. Right. And um, uh, Brian, any other plot points or like storyline points that you want to bring up? No, I, I do really want to hammer home that like if you are looking for an accessible Tarantino movie where you failed at watching some of his other works in the past, I do truly believe this is the most accessible of his films. So. If you're just like, oh, I've got friends who ridicule me constantly uh, and I need to watch and like a Tarantino movie, this is probably your best shot if you haven't liked your other attempts. I might say Hateful Eight to that. Really? See, yeah, I like Hateful Eight was so like it was such a Tarantino movie in its its obscurities and weirdness and the dialogue just drives further insanity and you definitely don't get any sort of relief from the cursing aspect if that's something you're against. Oh, wait, no. Oh, you're right. Maybe Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, actually. Sorry. Okay. I, that's the one that... Oh, yeah, no, like, no, Hateful Eight's one of the heavier. I'd say It and Django are probably his two least accessible movies. Huh, okay. No, but uh, to your question, you seem, you seem surprised by that pick, Michael. What, what about you? See, I don't think that I would say Jackie Brown's his most accessible. I think... If I had to kind of recommend someone that would be like, hey, I've never watched a Tarantino film. What should I watch? I'd probably, I, to be honest, I'd probably send them down the Kill Bill route or maybe Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think this one is, you got to be invested. This is a, this film is an investment of leaning forward to dialogue. You've got to be paying attention it's like a character real piece versus being propelled by moments of, or, or sequences of just insanity, which I think can, uh, you know, drag, pull uh, audiences in. This film is a little bit more, you're kind of sitting back in the living room and you're just joining conversation with some really messed up people largely for the most of it. So I don't, I don't know if this is the first film I would introduce to someone who's never really kind of gotten Tarantino. I think it might put them off because it's sort of like they may find it laborious somewhat. Well, I was going more from an angle that's like someone watched Pulp Fiction. They're like, oh my God, what the heck did I just watch? And then someone watched Kill Bill and they're like, oh, I didn't realize Kurosawa went spaghetti Western. Like I, I could just see people being hit with a couple Tarantino movies and being thoroughly put off and then watch this one and be like, Oh, that's way more normal. And I agree with you on once upon a time in uh, in Hollywood. I keep doing that once upon a time in Hollywood. I, I do think that one is accessible as well, but it's time price tag is higher than this one. So I was falling back to Jackie Brown. 
Yeah. No, I get it. Your sense where you're saying uh, just from like a uh, a story structure and and uh, narrative, the st- like it, this one is a bit more straightforward. That you're you're totally right. I just think people, you gotta you gotta be in to Tarantino to kind of really appreciate this. You gotta like his dialogue. You gotta want to spend time with these characters. Do you think there's a Tarantino movie where that's not the case, though? Uh, like I said, I feel like I think you could get away with Kill Bill that people would get uh, we could just like fall into going. Just well, the actions are pretty cool. Like, uh, right. yeah, you, it's, it's it's like an R-rated Scott Pilgrim. Almost. Yeah, yeah, that's actually that's actually pretty, pretty accurate. Like some people can just be you can turn your brain off a little bit and go, oh, that crazy 88 scenes nuts and. Uh, the fight in the kitchen, all that. There really isn't any of that in this in in this movie, as we said. Nope. I mean, it's it's not bombastic. This thing is not. So I think uh, I, I I hate keeping bring up uh, Kill Bill, but it just th- that feels a little bit more like it, you you a, a casual going movie fan could just kind of just go, well, the action was cool. Sure. But Brian, go ahead and give us a cast rundown. Oh, sure. So for Jackie Brown, we have the uh, main centerpiece, which I know we just talked about how no one really carries it, but the the namesake of the movie will be played by Pam Greer. We have a character of Samuel L. L. Jackson, character of Wardell Roby. Robert Foster plays Max Cherry. Bridget Fonda is Melanie. Michael Keaton is Ray Nicolette. Robert De Niro is Louis Gara. We have Michael Bowen as Mark Dargis, Chris Tucker as Beaumont Livingston, uh, Lisa Gay Hamilton as uh, Sharonda. She was like one of my favorite less than 15 second parts of this movie, just to interject that in real quick. <laughs> and then we have kind of a, a host of other characters that involve numbers. This cast is older than usual. I, I think uh, it was interesting. It actually seems like some a film that a director might make in their late career because the actors are so old. Uh, it's interesting to see such a mature cast again headlining all of hmm. this. Yeah, it is. It's probably his most, I was going to say adult film, but I don't want that to be misinterpreted. I guess maybe mature is probably the right way to, to put it compared to his... To, to his other films, I guess across the board, really, maybe Hateful Eight uh, is the other one again, where it's a there's a lot of gray beards in that one. But yeah, you're right. It that's a, a a really interesting insight that this feels like if you were looking at what has he done nine films now, you'd think this would be his like seventh or eighth film, not his third. Right. And it's not. It's his third. And it was a curveball at the time, like you said. I think he got himself out of a box yeah. with uh, Pulp Fiction and stuff. And I think people wanted him in that box and they were disappointed that, hey, get back in that box. But I mean, I think ultimately, if you see the direction and how he's respected over his careers, this has been an important one for him. So it's, it's an interesting move in terms of how he's casting. And I will say this. One of Tarantino's best assets is he is really good at casting. Oh, God, is he ever. Yeah. Are there any high points in this cast? Michael. Well, I mean, just the Robert Forrester, where like, where there was a part of me where I was like, where the hell did he dig this guy up from? I mean, the the Jackie Brown, Pam Greer thing was was a little obvious to me. Like, this is where he decided to go. You know, I love all those old films, the black exploitation films. You know, he's uh, just 
enamored by her as an actress. So that really made sense to connect it to kind of some of his influences that he was trying to play at here, but that he grabbed Robert Forrester out of complete obscurity as far as, you know, my viewing in 1997 he was, I just thought he was so pitch perfect as just your regular old guy that sits in a strip mall behind a desk, right? Bail bondsman. He was a really nice surprise. And I got to say, I think I can safely go on record here. This is my favorite Chris Tucker performance. Really my only <laughs> performance. Oh, I'm, Fifth Element. I love oh, Fifth I Element. And <laughs> him in Fifth Element. Oh, man, that's brutal. <laughs> I, so to me, it's like, I, this is my, my favorite little bit with T Chris Tucker in probably any film. Okay. Uh, and yes, he's, he's always, a you get him in small doses here, real small doses. Cause he's shot in a trunk with like in 15 minutes. So I think if we're, if we're going to go that route, I'm going to go with dead presidents for Chris Tucker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But it was interesting. Tarantino wanted Forster right away. And, uh, you know, Forster's career wasn't like like killing it at this point. So they met in a restaurant and Tarantino, very strong personality. It's just like, you're going to do this. That's all there is to it. And Forster was uh, excited to do it. For one, he needed it and he was in a bit of a slump, but uh, it rewarded him with that Oscar nomination yeah. for Best Supporting. So uh, he had actually looked at adapting Lawrence Tierney's part in uh, Reservoir Dogs in 92 for, for, for that audition. So Forster went for it there. And Tarantino came back to him here with him specifically in mind for Max Cherry. So an audition led to a casting. And that same thing happened for Pam Greer. Pam Greer screen tested for Pulp Fiction. And eventually it went to her part went to Rosanna Arquette. But Quentin Tarantino didn't forget her either. And he crafted the part of Jackie Brown, obviously with her in mind. And he was a big fan of hers, as you had mentioned, Michael. Yeah. So again, it's just one of those things where... It's interesting that somebody came in to audition for another movie and it led him to cast this movie. And it's just, these are, these are good castings. They're pretty strong. Brian, did you have any interesting casting comments? Yeah. I mean, we've heard of most of these people in one way or the other. I think Tarantino does have a knack for bringing in guys where you're like, oh, I've seen him in something and then not really being able to put your finger on it. And that's fun sometimes. I thought De Niro was an overcast, but it turns out he wanted the role of Max Cherry, but uh, Tarantino had his heart set on Forrester, and uh, he talked him into being in the movie and taking a much smaller role for Louis. Did De Niro feel like an overcast at all to you guys? No, I I, I think it's kind of interesting, the uh, the performance by De Niro in this. like that. It does, I get where you're coming from, that it's an overcast, because you're like, a lot, He's he's a man of very few words. Uh, obviously, he can... Uh, pop off uh, with, with in terms of a temper, but a lot of it is just he kind of mumbles his way through things, kind of just listens and nods to everything Ordell says. It's like I I I actually really like the De Niro performance in this because it's in a way it's kind of at times very against type for De Niro until you get those like moments of like rage. Uh, it, it's a it's sort of, it's strange casting, but I think it works. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more on that. I thought De Niro is kind of one of those things where you keep thinking, oh, this guy's going to end up being some primary portion of this. And he is to a degree, but it's one of those like, all right, I'm still waiting for De Niro in here. And he pops in with the funniest stuff. Like most of the humor in this movie that I took out of it came from in and around De Niro's portions. 
Well, it's interesting. De Niro, I guess, was frustrated that he didn't have more to do in the movie, and he and Tarantino really didn't get along that well on the set. So Tarantino goes back and reuses a lot of his old actors, and it's not uncommon to see some familiar faces, namely Sam Jackson, but... It got better as things went on because Louis' character comes out throughout, but I mean, De Niro did feel like he was kind of like on the bench, so to speak. And then other fun consideration, Christina Applegate was considered for the role of Melanie. Oh my God. Uh, but she was under contract with Married with Children <laughs> and scheduling did not work out. I think I might like that better. I, uh, you know, Bridget was fine for that character. Uh, it just, <laughs> she was one of those people that throughout the movie, you're like, all right, she's definitely going to get shot at some point, right? Yeah, I hope so. But, she was awful. Yeah, yeah. that that <laughs> like I just kind of biding my time. Yeah, you're waiting for it that you're like she's gonna that she's gonna die. Uh, there there is no question about that. I mean, she's just begging for it when she's doing the Louis Louis mm. like all that. Like, but she's she's fine in this. I mean, I, I think she's okay. But you're right. This is one of those roles that. Um, I think could have gone to somebody else and it wouldn't have made a massive impact to the film. True. I don't know. It's a dislikable character for sure. Oh, yeah. Man. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's one of those ones where she got shot. I'm like, hmm, that was surprisingly rewarding. Good job. <laughs> Why didn't we do that sooner? I think uh, I, if I can like post it to a, a TV show moment, it's that line in Family Guy where they're in the Brian and Stewie are in the bedroom uh, at the motel. And there's a drug deal going on, and he's like, "Oh, for God's sakes, he's wearing a wire!" And you're bam, bam, and he's like, "All right, good." Yeah, when she got shot, you're like, "Ah, oh, good." Right. All right. <laughs> I don't have to deal with any more of that. So this movie, this all, this movie was almost a different movie because Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery acquired the film rights to Leonard Elmore's novels *Rum Punch*, which this is this movie, *Freaky Deaky* and *Kill Shot*. And Tarantino initially planned to do either *Freaky Deaky* or *Kill Shot* and let another director go on and take *Rum Punch*. And he changed his mind after rereading Rum Punch and just fell in love with the novel all over again. And so this movie was almost another movie. Huh. Yeah, I'm not, I haven't read these other books, but it's just kind of interesting that uh, a, a second or a last minute reread changed what Tarantino's path was on this. Hmm. Tarantino was, was afraid Elmore would not like the film because obviously like it is very sprawling. And when he spoke to Leonard Elmore about started about the shooting, Elmore loved the screenplay and considered it not only the best 26 screen adaptations of any of his novels and stories that he had done, but also stating that it was probably the best screenplay he had ever read, period. Which, you know, helps that he wrote the novel. Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Humble brag. I think it's, uh, it's easy to point out all of the various novels uh, where the author has not liked the end movie piece i'd say it's almost more of a a big thumbs up to actually get a nod like that from an author yeah absolutely quentin tarantino as a director specifically in this movie because we keep talking about him throughout this movie here takes a lot from the black exploitation genre which i personally haven't spent much time with michael where do we see that carry over into this movie i'm not an expert on that uh, on black exploitation films by a, a wide margin uh, I think a lot of it is uh, setting. I think it is vibe. I think it is choice of music. I think it is a, a strong female lead that ain't going to take it no more. It's that sort of stuff that kind of comes through. But uh, in terms of pointing to other references, I'm a, I, I, I don't know if I'm the expert to say that, but I think what I just said sounded pretty good. 
No, that did sound good. <laughs> and you're right. It's particularly about a, you know, a, a black female lead actress, yeah. which is pretty uncommon for 1997. Yeah. And, you know, doing that and she writes, she's not going to take it anymore. And she's in control of her own destiny. Yeah. Love it. Good point. Uh, it was interesting. Tarantino compares the film Rio Bravo from 1959 saying it's a hangout movie. And he explained that Jackie Brown is better the second time around, which Brian and I might contest. But to your point, Michael, he said it's even better the third and fourth and fifth times because you can't get more of the plot. Like the plot is what it is. But the second time, the third time you're going to go through and you're going to see these characters develop and you're getting to get a better feel and live with these characters more. And he felt like 1959's Rio Bravo did that. And he liked that about this. And so he wanted, as he called it, a hangout movie. He said, it's about hanging out with the characters. Yeah, that's 100% my feelings about it. It's less about the plot on this one or the the shocks or the cre- the crazy twists. It's just you, I mean, you got to be into wanting to hang out with these characters, listen to them talk, uh, kind of soak them up like that. That's what it is. So a hangout, a hangout movie is just the best description of it. I mean, you're kind of, you're right. You're either in or you're out because this movie's largely based on and, and you know, lives and dies based on how much you want to see them smoking bowls on a couch and talking for 20 minutes. Absolutely. And you know what? I find myself being somewhat hypocritical on this one. It might just be because I'm such a sucker for comedy. It's my favorite genre, but I love Judd Apatow. And Judd Apatow movies do a lot of the things that Quentin Tarantino does in terms of he's going to go on tangents. He's going to bring in alternate characters. He's going to shift the focus completely off the main character at times. He's going to smoke a lot of weed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so, uh, you know, when, when you watch a movie like This is 40, I find myself being like, why is it I'm so on board with this? Whereas Jackie Brown, I'm sitting there going like, it's it feels a bit arduous at times. And I'm sitting there going like, why why am I like that? Because I should sit there and say, you know, this Judd Apatow movie is tedious. And Funny People is tedious, by the way. Oh, it yeah, it is. Yeah. But why do I like movies like A Train Wrecked and stuff like that? But then movies like this, I'm not as much into. And there's humor here, too. There's, I think we haven't talked about that. There are some moments that make you kind of smile and giggle and stuff like that throughout this. And I don't know. Brian, what, what, what's my deal? <laughs> what's your deal? Um, I think that Quentin Tarantino has equally good, if not better, credits to his name, not as a director, but as a writer. And it's because of the wit that he in, interlaces in serious movies, maybe a little bit more so in Kill Bill than others, or Inglorious Bastards, where there's some you know punch punch lines. But if you look at some of his other written work, uh, True Romance, uh, Dust Till Dawn, stuff like that. I mean, albeit sometimes dark humor, and that usually ends up getting me more than his outright you know in your face stuff. But um, I think that you, if you look at him as a whole, not just his directorial credits, I he his talent is writing. Yeah, I think he's a writer first, director second, uh, no question. Absolutely. And and I think when that that Apatow comparison to go back to that, Tarantino's not going to be everybody's cup of tea, right? He's a little offensive. He's a little scenes kind of run. He kind of is in love with his characters to a nth degree that sometimes he lets scenes percolate 
so long. Like that was what I heard a lot of people uh, about their, their issue that they had with once upon a time in Hollywood is where they went, what was that even about? It was just like a bunch <laughs> of scenes, just a bunch of scenes of people talking. Like I, I can see people, I, I'm not going to knock somebody for having a reaction like that. I particular, I liked a once upon a time in Hollywood a lot, but I, 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 I get it. I get how you could see that movie uh, and feel that way because that's a lot of, that's his style and it, it can be polarizing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Did you by chance see the cameo or not cameo? I should say, did you catch the Quentin Tarantino cameo? Cause he likes to insert himself into his own movies. Michael, did you happen to notice this? Yeah. Isn't this, isn't he a voice on a, uh, answering machine, answering machine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for Jackie Brown's answering machine. Yeah. Yep, you caught it. Did you catch when this movie was? I kept thinking we were in the 70s for I don't know how long, because it wasn't until I think Chris Tucker was getting picked up at the hotel, and I was sitting there going like, wait a minute, are we in the 90s when this was made? And sure enough, it was set in 95, which is two years prior to its release. That in itself was odd, but this thing was throwing, and I'm kind of making a soundtrack note, but they're throwing all the 70s soul music and stuff at you, and I'm sitting there going like, wait, I'm confused. Did anybody else think that they were in the 70s initially? I don't think I got that just because of the cars that they use in it. It was it was very early 90s vehicles, and I think subconsciously a lot of times in movies that if you don't have a piece like that correct, let's say this was supposed to be set in the, in the 70s, like I I never would have gathered that just because I'm looking at the the, the makes and models of the cars that are out. Okay, no, okay. Uh, did did anybody else fall for this? I I did the same thing in Superbad at first, in fairness, because Superbad starts off with a bunch of '70s music, and I'm, and then all of a sudden you're in the 2000s, so I'm sitting there going like, I I don't know, I'm sucker. If you throw if you throw some Motown or some uh, soul music my way from the '70s, I'm just I'm I'm in this I'm in for the '70s. <laughs> yeah, I, I gotcha. But I mean, like the cars was a big piece. The strip malls kind of the clothing that they were wearing I, I oh think later later that mall is super 90s no oh yeah that <laughs> so, is I mean, a they're, 90s they're just, mall they're just earmark pieces that i just assumed it was ballpark when it was made okay uh now it was interesting the context of the locations in california like these are not your typical la area shooting places Compton and you know, uh, gosh, the the Del the Adele M O Mall uh, is not really something that you would think that would be an eventful landmark kind of place in there. What do you think the? Do you think it was just part of the writing, Michael, or did you think that these things were picked for a reason by Quentin to give it a flavor? I I think it's a little column A, little column B. I think he wanted to show sort of like the outskirts and uh, the hood and the 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 roads like the the roads that you usually don't turn on right like i think it was he that was probably implicit in the writing but it's like he probably has that mall for all we know showed up in some crazy b movie from the 1970s so he had to he had to film there like the, tarantino is one of those people good or bad kind of where he's so meticulous like everything is based on something from his childhood or a drive-in movie that he saw when he was 12. So he had to reference that. So I'm sure there's some obscure reason why all of these places are picked, but I think it's, I think it's also for the vibe of 
it's this is low rent where we are right like it's it's sort of the you know the the uh this is not the upper echelon of for of the the, the uh, type characters that we're dealing with so kind of seeing them in their element i think he also has the cockiness to say if you give me a five thousand dollar budget for places i want to film not only can i do it but i can make it cool Right. And the bail bonds office by Max Petrius bail bonds was a real bail bonds office. They demolished it in 2008, so you can't go there now. But, you know, not much of a stretch on that one. No, it looked pretty convincing. <laughs> <laughs> now, wardrobe, again, I, I Jackie's initial flight attendant uniform made me think that we're back in the 70s, uh, especially walking in front of that tile wall, which, by the way... I know you've covered this one on your podcast there, uh, Michael. What movie did this remind you of at the very beginning as she's moving along in that uh, flight attendant's wardrobe? Hmm, what do they call that one? The Graduate, perhaps? Yeah, Brian, are you a fan of that? (laughs) Not yet. I'm hoping that maybe one day I will be. Uh, Brian had a rough go with that one. (laughs) (sighs) I just kept thinking, why isn't this guy in jail? (laughs) Uh, no, but uh, that was just an interesting thing. But uh, the other wardrobe thing I, just, I have to ask is, what is with Sam Jackson's hair and the braided goatee? He is a strange looking dude. Yeah, he, Ordell Roby is just one of a kind, man. His fashion sense, the, what do they call those hats that he was wearing? Like the little... What are those? It looks like he has like a little beanie hat turned backwards. I mean, I know there's... Joey Pants likes those too. Uh, Joe Pantoliano wears them. Yeah. Um... What are those called? Like, I'm, if only there was a way we could find that out. If only there was a... Yeah, I actually think I have one of those hats, except mine's like Argyle. Uh, Kango hat? That's it. Kang- Kango Yeah, that's it. Kang- We're probably oh, mispronouncing it, but yeah, that's it. The Kango hat or what? The... the... Kango? Is that it? Is that how you say it? I'm butchering this and you can write into the show and phonetically spell it out <laughs> for me. I'm sorry. But yes, that but yeah. that is an odd, that's an inter- your interesting choice of hat is what we're saying. Like his entire wardrobe is so bizarre and so you can tell once again, meticulously created. Like that's not just basic. Like that's not just going, well, put the man in a pair of pants and sure it doesn't matter. Like that was a very, he had a distinct idea of what he wanted Ordell to look like and dress like and be like. And it's just the strangest concoction of hairstyle and clothing. Yeah, it makes for a really bizarre character. It was his idea to give the long hair and the braided goatee, uh, Jackson, that is. So um, those were choices he made. So So I think think where I'm I'm sorry, not to be too hung up on the hat thing, because I was just trying to articulate how I felt about the hat. It's almost like Nike or Adidas went out and made a sports version of like the Donegal tweed men's hat, like the peaky caps, like in Britain or Ireland. Yes. Uh-huh. But, but it's like the Adidas version. Like this is the sports that. Yeah. It's like you buy it at lids or whatever. You know what yeah, I mean? Like, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But, but it's like, all right. So I saw this in like turn of the century London. I liked it so much, but I want to wear it on the basketball court. So I'm going to need an Adidas version of it. Right. That's the hat. You're right. Going back to hair choices, Robert Forrester mentions in his dialogue that he had some hair added for his hairline. And uh, in real life, Robert Forrester had done that. And this was kind of a added thing that uh, they, you know, they included in the movie. And so Tarantino wrote it into the screenplay and 
was delighted to see that happen. So it was one of those, another one of those spontaneous things where they put it in there. Again, this movie feels like everything got added in there. Like, yeah, put that in there. Yeah, put that in there. Sure, why not? Yeah. Just a yes guy in the background going, oh yeah, that. Now, did you like the soundtrack, Brian? I mean, it was fine. Uh, it's not typically music I listen to, uh, but it fit with where I thought the movie was going, and I did like how that kind of brought uh, the Bale Bondsman and Jackie together a little bit, where he's, you know, kind of this closet mu- music enthusiast, and he was kind of getting into it, and he was kind of getting into her, and so he's you, he ends up listening to it throughout the movie. I think I think when you find a new person friend or love interest or whatever whenever you find out what kind of music they are it is kind of interesting because it says a little bit about them and i love how this movie captures that yeah that's a really nice scene when he's like goes in and gets the cassette delphonics the delphonics cassette that's a fun that's a that's a nice little scene i also think one of tarantino's uh, like a really great quality of him is the music selection i know he's not he's got people who are helping him on that but Generally, I, I agree. Like in this film, this is not really the type of music that I would generally listen to, but it really helps evoke tone. And there's a couple tracks on this that are really great. I think the the song that Ordell Sam Jackson puts on in his car when he's stuffed Chris Tucker in the in the trunk, that's a dope tune, man. Like that is a really good song. So Tarantino's done that. I mean. I think he his most successful soundtrack is Pulp Fiction by by Miles, but all of his films are really great, interesting selections of a certain time and place. Or uh, so this one, I, I think, follows suit there. There's a lot of a lot of really good music, but it's stuff outside of my range, which I I like. I like being introduced to kind of new stuff. I gotta admit, I got a, across 110th Street by Bobby Womack stuck into my head. Yeah, uh, for days again i'll watch this twice and it's at the beginning and the end of the movie but i mean still are you ready to hand out some awards let's do this let's do it who is your mvp of jackie brown my mvp i'm gonna have to say the uh, it's it's sam jackson for me on this it's uh i think this is an a extremely different role than Jules from Pulp Fiction, which everyone was like, oh, okay, he's in another Tarantino film. I think it's very different. I think Ordell is a fascinating character, and I think Sam Jackson just chews into it. I think he carries the whole film personally. He's my MVP. Okay. Now, do you prefer his hair from Pulp Fiction, or do you prefer his hair from Jackie Brown? Oh, I'm going Jules' hair. Okay. Jules' hair for the win on that. (laughs) Brian, who's your MVP? Uh, I also went with Sam Jackson on this one. I think that he, when I think of an MVP, it's people that I perk up a little bit more when they're on screen because I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. That's definitely his character in here because you're always like, oh, what is he going to do next? And and you're excited for it. So yeah, I'm going with Sam Jackson on this. And I had a hard time. I was going through other really self-obsessed, I really only care about myself characters, you know, from, from film. And this is a character I think you can kind of see used a lot in things. And this is just the, the Tarantino iteration of it. Yeah, yeah. Now, my MVP, I'm going to go with Robert Forrester. Now, this is what I will remember him for. 
It just was, something was very likable. He gave me a horse in the race to root for. He was the normal guy who was getting roped into this. And I thought that was a very valuable thing for me to be able to anchor myself to this character. And so he gave me somebody to care, somebody I knew where he stood. And I, I definitely liked him in this one. And he played it so well. Yeah. Got that Oscar nomination to go with it. So best supporting actor, Michael. I got to give it to De Niro for uh, for me on this. I like I I, I kind of waxed earlier. I think it's a really fascinating performance, and it, and it just feels really out of type with him, with him. And it's just sometimes I like it when people are brave enough to have characters just kind of listen and not be like he looks a bit vacant in places, which is intentional. I, I I'm getting the the sense. I I just I really I, his scene when he ultimately kills Bridget Fonda in the parking lot is I would say argue is probably one of the highlights of the film. I think agreed. So he I I would say I'm gonna go with De Niro. Nice. Now, Brian, who's your best supporting actor? I went with Michael Keaton on this one because he was almost, to me, the the same character as Samuel Jackson, just on the other side of the law. Like, I'll do anything, say anything to get what I want out of somebody. And it gave it kind of a duality or a parallel of uh, chaste versus the chaser. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I picked Michael Keaton as well. I, for one, I hated Mark DeGrasse's uh, character, but uh, I, I did like Michael Keaton in this part and his part. So it was one of those things where I hated one of the cops and I liked the other one. And I guess that's good cop, bad cop. At its, yeah, at there its you core. Go. I think that, that Keaton was, was playing the bad cop a lot uh, in terms of that duo. But yes, I completely understand what you're saying in terms of him being the good cop is in the one you're really watching. Yeah. Now, Michael, who is your hidden gem? Uh, hidden gem for me, and I, I mentioned this before, is Chris Tucker, man. I love that scene uh, is, I think, just some of the best dialogue almost in the whole picture. And I love the music. I like the I like that tracking shot of the car basically going around the block He's I, I like I I think it's like I said, my favorite Tucker time ever on screen. So I'm, I'm going with him. I think he's Beaumont's Beaumont's the best. OK, great choice. Now, Brian, who is your hidden gem? All right. You guys are going to have to bear with me a little bit on this because he's not really hidden at this point, And just hear me out. I went with Tarantino as a hidden gem on this piece not because he was a secret at this point, obviously, this was post-pop fiction, but if you look at his writing credits at this point and then really focus on the fact that if you were not involved with him as a writer for his films and then other films, this one really forced you to be like, oh, this was really well written. I don't just want to see what else he directs in the future. I want to know what else he's written. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a good one. That's fine. My hidden gem's going to go to Tommy Tiny Lister, who plays yeah. Winston, the gigantic guy who works at the Bales Bonds office yeah. with, with Max. Yeah. I just, <laughs> fifth element reference, second one in this movie <laughs> in, in here. So uh, he he will work again with Chris Tucker. He plays the president. In you got to like Tony Lister. I mean, you got to like that man. I mean, he's the he's an actor that other than playing, what was, wasn't he in Hulk Hogan's No Holds Barred? He was the villain Zeus, right? Uh, probably. I, I will blindly agree to that. 
That he did. And he's just a guy that shouldn't work in any movie. And he he shows up in these little obscure parts and he always is very likable. Like uh, I now him, I liked in the fifth element. So there you go. You can stop hissing. <laughs> he, and he, I completely never thought of him for this, but yeah, that's a, that's a good pick. All right. So if you had to recast somebody and put somebody in their place, Michael, who would it be? Well, guys, uh, looks like I was brought on the show for a major point of difference right out of the gates. I did not like Michael Keaton in, in this. He felt out of place for me. He was an overcast. I, it's, it's funny. There's a, they, 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 a lot of people will say that there's only there's certain types of actors that can kind of really handle Tarantino's dialogue and kind of fit into one of his movies. He seemed out of place uh, as Ray here. Interesting little note, though, I'm sure you guys, I'm not sure if you guys are aware of this, Keaton plays that same character in the movie Out of Sight, which is another Elmore Leonard film that Steven Soderbergh did with the aforementioned George Clooney, which is an awesome movie, if you haven't seen it. Is that the one with Lopez, Jennifer yeah. Lopez? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that yeah, up. Yeah, I have seen it. That's a great movie. I didn't realize Keaton was the same guy, though. That's kind of cool. Same character. He's playing Ray Nicolette again in that, and I like him far better in... in uh, out of sight. Something okay. about him here just didn't work for me. Too casual? Too casual, or it took me out of it. It just didn't, it, it was so like, oh, there's Michael Keaton. And it. I, I just didn't buy him uh, with, like, it just didn't work. I think it took me out of it. After you see the other guys where Michael Keaton's, uh, you know, a cop in that one as well, or you, are you, you can't see him doing anything without making TLC references? Yeah. I love that part of that movie. Like that's, that's seriously my favorite part of Out of Sight are, are the TLC references. Yeah. <laughs> really guys, don't go chasing waterfalls in this don't, one. Right. Just don't. Just don't. Please don't. don't. <laughs> so I would say like, I would do, I would put like a more of a, let, let's bring back like a Tarantino regular here. Like let Tim Roth or something do a little bit part. Cause if you're going to overcast it, let Tim Roth come in here and be the cop. But uh, yeah, I just didn't. Michael Keaton didn't work for, for me in this. He, he took me out of it. Okay. Seeing in the Tarantino family tree, that works. Now, Brian, who are you going to recast? Uh, I'm I'm just going to go for the gold on this one. I would recast Jackie Brown. <laughs> so I would take Pam Greer out of it and maybe go with somebody like Lisa Bonet or something. Just someone a little edgier. Hmm. So, someone a little like harder, I guess. Like, she has grit to this, but I, I don't know if it was something about her softer features or something like that. I would like to see someone a little harder. Wow, I, I thought she was, um, I don't know what the word is uh, to be quiet and have this huge presence to yourself. But she did have whatever that vocabulary word is I'm looking for. Um, pre she had presence, that's all I can say. Yeah. I, I liked her in this. Interesting pick, though. So I'm going to go for Bridget Fonda. I mean, it is it is not the most likable character, but I just perhaps liked her too little with Bridget Fonda. I just she was <laughs> she was awful. So uh, I, I saw the Christine Applegate comparison. I couldn't take it out of my head at some point. So this is a little bit of a lazy one. But once I saw it, it's just like, I, I want that. <laughs> I want that. Best shot of the movie. Was it Bridget Fonda's foot for you, Michael? Oh, him and his flipping like foot fetish. My God. I know. <laughs> Dust till dawn. Just crush that good lord um favorite shot of this film i would probably say i and i've mentioned it already i really like the the tracking shot of uh sam jackson putting chris tucker and then 
them driving just around the corner and it kind of just we see it all in one frame and the camera just kind of falls it i think that's a really well composed shot and it's the one that stood out for me nice great choice what about you brian i said the exact same thing i said chris tucker getting shot in the trunk it was just it's that's the kind of wit that i'm kind of going for in a tarantino movie where you're just like okay well he's definitely gonna die but then when you just have him drive around the block to get out and shoot him like that's that's a little funny to me i i liked the same shot and i'm sorry i have to i have to double i have to triple down on this one it's the best shot of the movie now i want one more thing i want the tracking shot to then hop over the block as he takes away and then i want to see sam jackson drive into the waffle and chickens diner and get himself a little bit of chicken and waffles oh, yeah. and then in the scene yeah that's good he said he was gonna get some chicken and waffles and it sounded pretty good and that's good eating <laughs> <laughs> best scene though michael best scene i gotta say i i love ordell i'm not to be like a broken record here but i love ordell the 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 scene that i often quote when i'm thinking of this movie is the one we're just mentioning is him trying to entice uh, beaumont to get out of his hotel room and help me you know it's like i hate to be that sort of guy that's gonna you know hit up a guy right away but i gots to be that kind of guy and then he's like, man, it is late. I am high. Like that whole sequence. Uh, and then him trying to explain the, you know. Elaborate, elaborate lie too. A huge elaborate a lie about how they're going to go, you know, they're going to scare these Korean guys and he's going to be in the back with the shotgun. That and Chris Tucker's sort of reaction to do it, not wanting to do this. That's probably my favorite scene of the film. Man, I ain't getting in no dirty trunk. I ain't getting in no dirty ass trunk. <laughs> Come man. on, man. <laughs> all right brian best scene for you uh best scene for me was the varying points of view and probably the most tarantino shot of this movie or scene of this movie was the multi-vantage point shopping bag switch yeah i did i did enjoy it's like the the three cups and one ball underneath it's just that whole portion of it was just kind of a fun sequence to watch well if i had nodded off in the first 40 minutes of the movie I woke up and I would have been pleasantly surprised by that same scene because that was really exciting. And I got to say, I I have a lot of mixed feelings on this one as I start to prepare for my review here later. This is really good. This is the heart of the movie for me. I'm with you, Brian. I was on the edge of my seat. I loved it. I liked the fact that De Niro flubbed it up and ended up murdering uh, Bridget Fonda's character, Melanie, uh, which, by the way, that was just, again, very rewarding. And I like the drop from three different ways and you don't really have the full story and they keep putting the time frame up on the bottom part yeah. of the screen and you're going back and forth between there. Loved it. It was great. Yeah. So uh, did, did this, this to me, if, if more of the movie had been like this, I, I guess you could call it playing the Christopher Nolan game, so to speak. Yep. Yeah. I'm sign me up a little bit of editing and a little more of that. And I'd, I'd, I'd really be set. There's a lot working right here. So change one thing. If you could change one thing, Mike, I know where they're going. Uh, and what the intention of said scene was. But I really don't think the scene where Ordell is trying to kind of uh, force his ways uh, on Jackie Brown with continually turning the lamp off, that scene didn't work for me a lot. I, I just think it was, uh, it's it's a little long. It's a little hard to see what's happening, obviously, because it's dark. I probably would have restructured that sequence. Okay, great. Brian, change one thing. 
I'm not usually one to jump in for gratuitous violence or anything, but it being a Tarantino movie and coming off of something like Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, I could have used maybe just a little bit more gunfire in this to make the middle kind of pop a little bit more. I don't need it, but I think that if there had just been, even if it was quick, even if it was something just like Chris Tucker getting shot in the trunk, like just something, a little something else to be like, oh, that happened. I think that that was a distinct move on Tarantino's part to distance himself from that because some people were not liking Pulp Fiction due to the just gritty, grisly, abrasive nature of it. And so Melanie is killed off screen. Beaumont is killed off screen. And you technically don't really see Louis when he's shot either. Um, you know, the blood splatter is pretty dramatic, but at the same time, it's not right up in your face. And even 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 the, the last kill for, um, you know, Ordell's is just... You know, not not gratuitous. I totally get it, but I feel like there is a middle ground where if you take Jackie Brown on the left and Pulp Fiction on the right, you could go 75% and still have that stepping away aspect. You don't have to go almost completely devoid. Okay. So you want maybe uh, Ordell to shoot De Niro in the head like nine times, load another clip in and shoot him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that no, sounds right. <laughs> it, it, it's it's more of a dispersion. Like, just give me a little bit more to carry the center of the movie. Like if something else had happened or, you know, I, I, I'm not saying cut and paste a scene out and put it somewhere else. I'm just saying that, like, for instance, with what Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, outside of the Brad Pitt, Bruce Lee fight scene, like the middle of that movie was fairly barren of uh, really any action piece. And that's fine. You know, you can take that movie for what it was. But then when you have such, something so catastrophic happen at the very end, it, it just leaves you like you just it, it's like walking from the desert and hitting the Rocky Mountains. I'm going to pay Michael back for my change one thing. He uh, he came after Michael Keaton, so I'm going to I'm going to go after his De Niro pick on this one. I want to see fewer scenes with De Niro in it. I think again maybe having him in it kept this character in play more. Louis not that interesting to me and there's a lot of scenes just sitting there in the living room with him and I just don't need so much Louis time. And I I like where it finishes out. I like where it goes in the end, but that blank burned out nature that he has. I I don't know. Yeah, that was that was that was a character I didn't put my arms around. You talk about a hangout movie. I don't want to hang out with Louis. <laughs> but you've probably hung, you've probably hung out with a guy like Louis though. You ha- like the <laughs> app. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, very true. So let's uh, go to best quote of the movie. I think I know where the, what area this is coming from, but more specifically, Michael, what is your best quote of the movie? Well, I might surprise you a little bit, uh, but I I gotta say one of my favorite bits is when. Uh, Ordell goes, I got it right here in my Raptors bag. Uh, that's, you know, <laughs> the, ra- really? that felt so funny. <laughs> Obviously I'm from Toronto represent, uh, and the, it was such a strange moment where we, when we saw that and we're like, and this was what, this was way before, this was like when the Raptors were like third or fourth year as an organization, well, well before they had won the championships. It was such, so obscure that they, that the rat he'd have a Raptors gym bag. So that for some reason is one of my favorite lines in the movie. Okay. Right on. That makes sense coming from Toronto. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't put that together. Cause I was like, wait, what <laughs> now? Now it all makes sense. So I'm sure it's Drake's favorite as well. 
Oh, yes, definitely. Now, Brian, what is your best quote of the movie? All right, I'm going to do it just because it, it just needs to be done. Look, I don't want to be the kind of ninja that does the ninja a favor and then, bam, hits a ninja up for a favor in return. But I'm afraid I gots to be that kind of ninja. <laughs> yeah, that's a great line. <laughs> yeah, they're dropping those fast. Yeah, that's a, But it is a good line, though. And I do remember that one for sure. Oh, I, I was prepared to go with another one, that, but uh, I actually assumed it would get picked. So k- kudos to you guys for... I didn't pick a, here's my Raptors bag. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a good line. All right. So my, uh, my best quote of the movie comes from Ordell Roby when he goes, the AK-47, the very best there is when you absolutely positively have to kill every mother effer in the room except no substitutions. Yeah, that's that's a that's a, this film's chock full of stuff. I mean, I, I, I the the Raptors bag thing is just a is a silly one, but like both of yours are are great examples of some of the just the the fantastic dialogue in it. Runner up though, I do like it when Max Cherry says, "You know, a good cop will never let you know when he's when you're full of crap." Yeah, you can cut this if you need to, Russ. But I also like the my ass may be dumb, but I ain't no dumbass. Yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah you know again tarantino thrives on dialogue clearly and a lot of it is really good we say you know brian and i've been knocking it for having too much of it but on the other hand some of it's very very well done yeah uh you know i definitely see the appeal for sure on this one now michael where can our listeners hear more from you well, if you like the sound of my voice, you can listen to me monthly on a show called The Classic Film Jerks. Uh, that's where we go back and check out to see if all these old classic films are indeed just that, if they are classics. So just uh, go search on all the podcasting uh, platforms we're there and search on the social media things and for The Classic Film Jerks and you'll find us. I got a quick question for you. Do you ever channel uh, Justin Long and live free or die hard to Bruce Willis, where he starts playing Creedence Clearwater Revival, and he goes, "What? It's classic rock. Just because it's classic doesn't mean it's good or something like that." I don't know. It was it, it was a great line at the time, and I like Creedence Clearwater, but uh, it was it's just funny because as soon as you said that, I was like, "Oh man, it's like that Justin Long quote." It, it's true though, because it's like they call them classic movies in the sense of, but they're like, "No, you're just saying that because they're old. Like they're yeah. old movies. We'll determine if they're." classics or great movies so that's the that's what we do on the show and and i gotta say you guys do a really good job in the show of pointing out humorous things that you know you might not necessarily question or even like pick up on i mean you challenge yourselves to find the humor and to point out stuff even when rotten tomatoes gives this thing a 99 percent <laughs> from the critics you're gonna you, you guys are definitely gonna go after it and uh one of the things that uh, you have on there is a so old segment and i i have to do it uh you know here so old uh the jackie brown movie how much smoking was there in this movie this thing was also the old smoky like there was a lot of smoking in this movie for sure (laughs) like yeah that's one of the things that's an important preface for our show for classic film jerks is it's clearly the intention is to take it through the lens of someone watching it now right like it's Mm -hmm. forgetting the context of uh what was happening in 1942 it's like okay, you're watching a movie from 1942 in 2020. You know, how does that inform it? How, how have things changed? How are things different 
that that's a big part of the show. So if you're looking for high, high uh, snobbery film review uh, criticism, you're looking at the wrong podcast. So this thing is, it's playful, as you mentioned. Uh, but we like the movies. We like a lot of them often, but uh, it's. But they're also not afraid to tell you Citizen Kane might be a bit overrated. Yeah. Smoke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, it, we've come full circle. On a five-star scale, half-star intervals, Michael, what would you rate Jackie Brown? I'm going to be, and I think I might be alone here, I'm going to go, I'm going to give this four stars, four out of five. Nice, nice. Yeah, you are not alone. Wow. Brian, does that mean you're giving it four stars? I am also giving this movie four stars. I'm going to go with three. Oh, I was just going to say, I don't find this to be the most entertaining of Tarantino's movies. Um, I, there's a lot of superlatives I can give it in terms of his repertoire. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's solid. I mean, there's very few of his movies where I'm like, eh, all right. But, uh, yeah, I, I think this is a solid four, and uh, it's entertaining, and you kind of get out of it what you put into it. Right. I'm going to go with a three, which is, which is the lower mark here. And to some degree, it's just Tarantinoisms that, you know, I, when, it's not good when I can sit there and say, can we take the first 40 minutes of the movie and make it 10 minutes? That th- those are criticisms, but on the other hand, I really loved the thrilling parts of the action of the exchange and the drop, and I I did end up liking the way that this movie goes. But then it comes back and frustrates me with the finish. So it's got a lot going right well for it, and I think there's a really really good movie in here. But I I I'm I'm a fan of restraint. Brian is always the fan of give me more, give me more, make this into a a six episode mini series or whatever. Like, and I'm not always on the give me more side. I'm I'm uh, on the less is more side sometimes. So, and that's where. I'm landing at three so i tasted the candy corn yet again if if you could if you could convince me that there is a director out there that i do by and large enjoy his movies but he needs to be more less is more i can completely understand that criticism of tarantino next week brian you want to help me pick another movie let's do it oh and i should say it's in two weeks we're going down temporarily to a bi-weekly format this corona business and as well as Brian's got a new little one on the way, so we, we know that the upcoming year here is about to get quite a shakeup, so we're going to slow down a little bit. we got a back catalog we want you to go check out, so uh, we promise you we'll still stick with it, and hopefully someday we'll go back to the weekly format. But for in two weeks, Brian, do you want to help me pick a movie? Let's go. So these are going to be science fiction uh, horror movies, by the way. So option one, Alien from 1979. After a space merchant vessel receives an unknown transmission as a distress call, one of the crew is attacked by a mysterious life form, and they soon realize that its life cycle has merely begun. Option two, The Thing from 1982. A research team in Antarctica is hunted by a shape-shifting alien that assumes the appearance of its victims. Option three, Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956. A small-town doctor learns that the population of his community is being replaced by emotionless alien duplicates. Uh, I'm going to go with Alien on this one just because it has literally been the thing most referenced by my wife during her pregnancy. Okay. (laughs) That's, uh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's not something you want to think about at this time. So uh, it, it's it's positive not thoughts, positive it's thoughts. not, but it's like that. The image is what keeps getting put in my head when she talks about. It's like, oh, there's a thing in here. Well, you got to at least shift that to spaceballs. You know, at least have it come out with a little hat. Let the top kind of hat and do the, the dance yeah. down the bar. Hello, my honey. Hello, my darling. <laughs> All right. Michael, thank you so much. You were a great guest. Thank you. Thanks, guys. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Hey, no problem, man. 
pleasure. And check out his podcast, The Classic Film Jerks. It's it's amazing. And thank you, all the lords, ladies, and knights, the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcast, because those reviews really help us make the show better, and it helps others find the show. Uh, five stars, please. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com all one word producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free and we invite you to support the show at patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash retro movie roundtable any contributions are appreciated and we always put that money into making the show better for you as always thank you for listening be good to each other and watch more movies brian it's like god's looking right at you just for a second and if you're careful you can look right back